Amen to that. Let's pray together. Father, we are enraptured with Jesus, the Savior, our Redeemer, our brother, our Lord. Father, right now, our hearts need to hear from you. They need your word to interact with our thoughts, with our emotions, and with our wills so that we might become the people of God who reflect their Father and their Savior, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' great and glorious name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, you know, Brian did this a few weeks ago. Uh, he introduced himself, and it's been a while uh, since I've thought about that, but there are a large number of you who probably don't know who I am. Uh, my name is Otto Skoog. I am one of the pastors on staff here at Countryside. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, I look forward to meeting you. It's a great joy and privilege to bring God's Word um, to you this morning. Uh, before I do that, I'd like to thank uh, those of you who have been praying for my father-in-law, Eldon Crenshaw, who had a stroke uh, last Friday and is uh, on the road to recovery. Um, I will say this last week for me has been a very uh, interesting week with God. Uh, not interesting like, um, like I was upset with God, but interesting in terms of evaluating my own frailty uh, before God. Uh, Eldon's one of the stronger guys I know. No, not muscly. No, not manly out there carting deer. He's killed with his bare hands out of the wilderness. That, not, not that kind of thing, but the kind of guy who, you know, slalom skied when he was 60, water skied when he was 60, you know, rode 70 miles on his bike when he was 70, and he's not a long-distance bike rider. Just one of those people that I admired and Saw his strength, right? And now that strength has been lost to the curse of this fallen world. And watching him suffer to the glory of God has been really humbling. I understand Paul's words to the church at Philippi when he said that through their prayers, he would be delivered, not set out of prison, but delivered, vindicated, that Christ would be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. And I've been witnessing that in the last week. As a man, a strong man, lays there honoring Christ, not shaking his fist at God, but eager and anxious to see what God will do through this time. And I appreciate your prayers. That's what Paul said. That your prayers, church at Philippi, were a part of that. Your prayers, countryside, have come alongside my father-in-law and enabled him to bring glory to God in this time. And I appreciate that. All right. Last Sunday, Kansas City won its second Super Bowl in four years. Spring a little levity to the heaviness, right? 
After the game, uh, my family and I were talking, and my wife asked if there might be a big letdown for the winner after something like this. You know, after the, all the adulation and the celebration. And, you know, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure in the context of one game. I hadn't heard anybody talk about it specifically in terms of the context of one game, but I have heard ex-players talk about how hard it is after they have retired from the game. They miss the camaraderie of the locker room. They miss the crowds at the stadium. They miss the thrill of the game and the cheers of the fans. Some, after retirement, even struggle with depression for a time. Because that admiration, that Praise is hard to replace. For many, they go from being a somebody to being an anybody. And that's a difficult transition. The cheers are hard to forget because it's easy to get caught up in praise. You know, that can be true for the people of God as well. It's easy for anyone to begin living for praise. In fact, it's possible to live for God in a way that is not for God, but for yourself. Did you hear that? It's possible to live for God in a way that is not for God, but for yourself. Find your way in your preferred Bible to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Our theme for the book of Matthew is this. Because Jesus is the Messiah King, we must worship and follow Him. Because Jesus is the Messiah King, we must worship and follow Him. And that can be turned into a question for all of us this morning. Am I a worshiper of Jesus? And am I following him? In our passage today, Jesus continues his expose on the heart. And in the section we are beginning today, which runs through verse 18, he takes aim at three prominent religious practices, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. All three of these were important demonstrations of piety or commitment to God. And as Jesus reveals, all three can be turned from selfless acts in the worship of God to prideful acts in the worship of self. And the key difference between the two is the heart motive behind the act of worship. So follow along as I read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Last week I sat down with Pastor Michael to talk about this passage and the ones which follow it. And as we batted around a theme for this passage, he suggested this, and I think it's the right one. Here it is. You are either practicing your righteousness to receive the praise of others or to bring glory to God. You are either practicing your righteousness to receive the praise of others or to bring glory to God. And with that theme in mind, there are three implications from this passage that I want to draw your attention to this morning. And the first is this. God cares about the heart behind your righteous deeds. God cares about the heart behind your righteous deeds. Look back at verse 1. Jesus' preaching has been prying open the hearts of the people and exposing the sin that remains hidden within. The heart was, has always been the target for God. You may know Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. But tension arises when we try to keep our heart, doesn't it? Consistently, since the beginning, God has wanted his people to see that something is fundamentally wrong on the inside and that they are in desperate need of spiritual transformation. This is why Jesus' teaching on this is so powerful. Jesus' teaching highlights that the outside can appear to conform to the law of God. And yet the core of the person is still completely rotten. Now you can see this if you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5.20. He said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this saying was meant to be arresting for both the religious leaders and the people. The religious leaders appeared to be the most strident followers of the Mosaic Law. And Jesus had just said that they were not righteous enough. So what more could be done? Does that mean there is no kingdom hope for the average Joe or Joseph? And then Jesus revealed that he wasn't talking about more religious deeds or more ostentatious acts of righteousness. Everybody trying to outdo one another, looking righteous. What he revealed through the words that followed this statement was the idea that what goes on on the inside of a person is just as important is what happens on the outside. I think most of us would agree that when something looks bad on the outside, there's probably a correlation to something bad on the inside. But what 
Jesus has been revealing to us is that there are times when everything looks right on the outside, but the inside is not right. The man or woman appears to be righteous or obedient to God, but on the inside there is sin run amok. And in our passage today, Jesus continues to drive home this point. He begins with the word beware. Look back at that verse. Beware. Be on guard. Be alert. Look out. Look out for this to see if it's in your own life. Consider whether what I'm about to say is true of you. And if so, be warned. Beware. Now his warning follows the exhortation in the previous section to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now a natural tendency for any person hearing this sermon, hearing those last words, might be to seek an external affirmation that we are doing just that. That we are looking just right. That we are hitting the standard, measuring up to the mark. Some hearing this may have considered those they observed to already be living to this lofty goal. But again, what Jesus wants to stress is that the external behavior that the people who are listening to Him or that the people in this room might be exhibiting may not accurately reflect the motive of the heart. And so at the end of the day, the heart, as Brian told us several weeks ago, is what truly matters. This has always been the problem. Isaiah 29, 13. In this verse, God made this analysis of His people. This people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. Everything sounds good, God says. But I can see who they truly are. Everything looks good, God says. But I know them at the core of their being. Beware, Jesus said. Don't let your righteousness become motivated by the affirmation of others. Instead of seeking the approval of others, seek the approval of God. Now hearing this, you might be confused because of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, He said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. At Jesus. Those two don't make sense together. They do. These two sayings of Jesus are not in conflict. Our lives are meant to be lived before the watching world. Our lives should reflect the character of God to the world around us. 
We want to be imitators of our Heavenly Father, as we heard last week. And we want to be people who experience His grace through us. Look again at 516. I'll wait for Joe to put it up there for you. What is the motive behind the way we are to live? It is that others would give glory to God. That's a different motive than the one Jesus is warning us of in chapter 6, verse 1. You can see that if you look back at chapter 6, verse 1. In 5.16, we want others to see God, not us. In 6.1, the motive is that we want others to see us. To see how gracious we are. To see how holy we are. We want others to glory in us. Beware of this, Jesus warns, because any act of righteousness done with this motive will not be rewarded by the Father. God cares about the heart behind your righteous deeds. The second implication from this passage follows and is found in verse 2. Helping others from the wrong heart motive is of no lasting value to you. Helping others from the wrong heart motive is of no lasting value to you. Verse 2, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, this isn't a mini-sermon by Jesus on giving. Of the three acts, giving, prayer, and fasting, the only act expanded on by Jesus and recorded by Matthew is in relationship to prayer. And possibly that's because what we pray reveals as much about the heart as anything. But in our passage, Jesus just assumes that giving to the poor is happening. Because it was a regular part of first century Jewish observance. In the law, God had not commanded a particular tithe or a particular offering that should be given for the poor and needy. There are passages that speak about special times every three years or every six years where the poor are cared for through special circumstances. And there were general reminders that the poor in Israel were to be cared for by the people, like this one in Deuteronomy 15.11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Where the curse of Genesis 3 abounds, there will always be those with fewer resources than others. Even among God's people in the nation Israel. There's a passage in Proverbs speaking of this type of almsgiving that has a strong connection to verse 4 in our passage. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Even the Apostle Paul expressed his commitment to this idea in Galatians 2.10, where he writes, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. So Jesus expected giving to the poor to be a part of his listeners' cultural heritage. 
So he's not preaching about the need to give. He's warning them about the motive behind their giving. His next words have somewhat been lost to the annals of time. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Is he referring to a real practice? Is he using a special instance of hyperbole to emphasize his point? Is he making a wordplay that connects to the shape of the opening for the offering boxes in his day? Well, the truth is there's no overwhelming evidence to support one interpretation over another. I hope that doesn't bother you. But knowing exactly what these words were referring to isn't important. Because all three possibilities highlight something that was meant to draw attention to the act of giving that was taking place. All three explanations for what Jesus could be referring to here simply point to someone trying to get others to look at them. And Jesus makes that point with His next words, that they may be praised by others. He's saying there's nothing sacrificial here. There's no generosity happening here. There's no giving happening here. Instead, something is being purchased. And that something is praise. That something is approval and admiration. That something is glory for the giver. Now, have you ever been motivated by another's approval? Now, if you said no to that, please consider that you are self-deceived. It's hard for me to imagine a son that doesn't seek his father's approval at one time or another, a daughter who doesn't seek her mother's approval from one time or another. But Jesus isn't saying that all instances of this are wrong. What he's pointing out is that there are times when our service, our worship, and our obedience to God are not motivated by a love for God and for His approval, but they're instead motivated by the impression that we might make on others. Our desire in doing them is to look glorious in the eyes of someone else. Hence the warning by Jesus. He's warning them as God would warn Israel in Isaiah 48, 11, My glory I will not give to another. The God-man is warning them not to seek the glory that only belongs to God. It's possible, Jesus says, to give your resources, your time, your energy, etc., and be purely selfish in doing it. Now, if that's your motive, then He wants you to know that no matter how generous your gift, God doesn't acknowledge it. That's what He says, isn't it? Right there in verse 2. He doesn't need to. Verse 2 tells us, 
you have already been been rewarded. Already, Jesus says. You got what you wanted, but you won't get what you need. And what you get won't last. But instead, we'll create a hunger for more and more and ultimately enslave you to the approval of others. And the approval of others is fickle. Just ask those NFL players how much grace they receive when they blow a play or when they get old and their skills begin to diminish. How many cheers are they getting then? God cares about the heart behind your righteous deeds and helping others from the wrong heart motive is of no lasting value to you. The praise you have received is your reward, and it will fade as quickly as it comes. The third implication from our passage this morning is found in verses 3 and 4, and it's this. Helping others from the right heart motive will be rewarded by the Father. Helping others from the right heart motive will be rewarded by the Father. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now it would be easy to take this too literally and to think that all giving must be done anonymously. That you have to set up an account that doesn't have your name on it or doesn't have any way of being traced back to you. Or that when you give, you can only give in cash so that no one will know who gave and how much. Now the figurative language Jesus is using is foreign to us. Of course, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But all that means is keep your giving to others between you and God. It's not something that's out there in the open. It's not like you're holding it out and go, hey, take a look left hand, see what's going on there. Hey, Ray, see how much I'm dropping in the offering plate. We don't, we don't do that anymore, but you know, putting in the box in the back. Be like me throwing my iPad up there and letting you see me click you know, send if I'm giving to some charitable organization or the church. Be like me uh, Instagramming you a video of me delivering you know, something to somebody's house who is in need. You're like, all of that sounds disgusting. And yet, I bet that if you were truly honest with yourself, you've done many things in the course of your life to impress others with your piety, with your righteousness. That it wasn't a love for God that motivated you. It wasn't a love for others that motivated you. It was simply to be seen and affirmed and approved and admired. 
Don't look for others' approval or admiration, Jesus said. Instead, give cheerfully as an act of service or worship to God. Protect your heart. If others remark on it, remind them that it is truly God's in the first place and you were simply the conduit. Remind them that you have been blessed to be a blessing. Now you may say, Look, it's hard not to feel that sense of pride when others are thankful. And that can be true. That is true. But you know, if we woke up every day with the realization of how truly needy we are, how dependent on God's grace we truly are, our hearts might begin to change. If we looked at others who are not where we are spiritually or materially and thought, but for the grace of God, that's me. That is the honest truth. Where you are spiritually and where you are materially is all due to the grace of God. That's why there is no room for pride. But if we would do that, then our pride would begin to diminish. And as our pride diminishes, our humility would grow. Look, begin to look out and see the grace of God in your life. And shockingly, our love and compassion for others will begin to grow. And our patience will begin to grow. And our kindness and gentleness will begin to grow. And you get the picture. The fruit of the Spirit will begin to shine everywhere in your life. And that's when Jesus' words about others seeing your good deeds and giving glory to your Father in heaven become real. That's when you will know the reward of the Father. The reward of the Father, the health and wealth gospel preachers would tell you, will be a bigger house and a fancier car and a larger bank account. But what God would say is, I've got a gift that's more valuable than that. And it's the image of my Son, Jesus Christ. And when people see it in you, they will give glory and praise to me because they have never seen anything so valuable in their life. That's what the world needs to see in us. The world needs to see less of us and more of Jesus. And the only way to do that is to wake up every day and pray that God would give us a vision of the power of His grace in our life and that we would beg Him to become conduits of grace in the lives of other people and that the fruit of His Spirit would flow through us to them. You know, when people see that and you tell them about Jesus, they can begin to believe in grace. Could there truly be any greater reward? You don't need others' affirmation. What you need is only the approval of of the Father. You are either practicing your righteousness to receive the praise of others or to bring glory to God. God cares about the heart behind your righteous deeds. Helping others from the wrong heart motive is of no lasting value to you, and helping others from the right heart motive 
will be rewarded by the Father. So where is your heart this morning? Remember the question that we the questions that we started with. Am I a worshiper of Jesus? Am I following him? Think about his words in Matthew 5:20, for I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. By Jesus standards are you good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven? Now I said by Jesus standards, not by your wife's standards or your husband's standards or your children's standards or your friend's standards or your neighbor's standards or the comparison that you're making to other people that you know in the workplace, etc. I'm talking about Jesus standards. Because Jesus said the most righteous people that the people he was talking to knew of in the world were not worthy of the kingdom of heaven. It would be shocking to me if you were worthy because of your good deeds. Absolutely shocking. I'll tell you this, if I had to stand there with my good deeds, there is no way I'm getting into the kingdom of heaven. No way. Even on our best day, our hearts would convict us of sin. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And it is appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. You say, how do I get a new heart? A man came to Jesus once. Jesus uttered these words to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be made new to get a new heart. And that new heart only comes with a new Savior. When you stop trying to be a Savior, your own Savior, and you humble yourself as a sinner before the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and you confess your need for Him, you not only get a Savior, but you get a new heart. John wrote these words about Jesus. In John 3.17, he wrote, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. There was no other way for anyone to be saved but that God would send Jesus. Earlier in that same Gospel, John would write, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but 
of God. If you want a new heart this morning, humble yourself before God. Admit that you are unrighteous. No matter how good you look on the outside, be honest with God about what is on the inside and plead with God to save you this morning. Plead with God to forgive you of your sin. And my friend, He will. I've been in your shoes as have all the other followers of Jesus in this room. And we can attest that with that Savior comes a new heart. Give your life to Jesus today. You will not regret it. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your words which continue to remind us of our brokenness without Jesus. Father, I thank you that your plan, which is so comprehensive throughout the Bible, is one of heart restoration. Father, I pray that you would impress that upon all of us this morning. For those of us who follow Jesus, Lord, I pray that we would deal with those times when we live righteously before others so that they may praise us. Father, convict us of this sin and strip it away from us. Remove it so that we might reflect you and you alone. And Father, for the one here today, who has never been open and honest with you about who they truly are, I pray that you would break them. That you would enable them to see their sin and to see the Savior. And I pray that you would save them this morning as they surrender to you and your will. And I pray this In the glorious name of Jesus Christ, amen.